Jones. This is our podcast um, with The Patchwork and i-patchwork.com. It is conversations on resiliency, how that we can connect that resiliency to passion for purpose. So I'm so excited today. I have my dear friend, David. David Russell Key, or David Key. Um, we work each other peripherally in um, fitness circles. And when I asked him, he so graciously answered and said yes. So without any further ado, there's David Key. Hey, welcome, you. welcome, Thanks David. For me. It is a pleasure to be here. I am so excited because I know you on a personal level, but it's always fleeting when we're in places, right? I never get to sit down and talk to you, never get to interview you, but I know you've always fascinated me because you're so incredibly down to earth. You have so much that you offer to so many people. So um, quick, quick question. So what was it that I said that made you want to be interviewed for our podcast? Well, um, I will share with your audience that you are one of my favorite people on the planet and almost nothing that you ask of me that I would not find a way to make it happen. And certainly, I, you know, I look at a lot of things. You are a source of inspiration for me. Just looking at some of the things that you do, the kind of rapport that you have with people, the fact that you have them, people had some of your recent work with the book and, and everything. I, I, have, I have always been a fan, even before we really knew each other, knew each other, you know, when we were passing at and working in familiar facilities, you know, just uh, right. you know, one of the things that I've kind of prided myself upon, just the way that I was raised, you know good energy when you see it. I've been around, I've been oh. so fortunate to be around so many good people. And, and just to, to get a feel for your energy, that was something that I was immediately drawn to. So it is, a, it is my pleasure to be here, no doubt about it. You know you're already in good graces with me, right? So no more brown yes. nosing, just <laughs> kidding. But no, but no, that's so cool. So, I mean, I mean, there's so much that I... I, I I was just talking about um, finding a Wikipedia page about on you. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea. So, what would you like our listenership to know about you? Wow, ooh, ooh. that's a uh, <laughs> that, that would be unraveling a lot of things. I, I, like I said, I've been I've been super fortunate in my lifetime just to uh, you know I jokingly just in conversations like these you know I've been interviewed. Uh, I would imagine a hundred or so uh, different times, but uh, just, you know, I, I feel like I've lived three or four lifetimes. When I look at just the, what my upbringing was, the, some of the things that I've been able to do, more importantly, some of the people that I've come across in my lifetime, it's just, uh, it's, it's been uh, truly a pleasure. And I try not to take those things for granted. Uh, and, you know, I feel like it's some of those things have been put in front of me in order to be able to use me as a vessel in order to give that to other people. Uh, one of the things I was very fortunate of that I learned at very early in life was, uh, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, heck, there were probably 12, 14 Division One scholarship athletes around me. So just the, what was normal for me, as far as expectation of what you were was supposed to do, it was just second nature. And, you know, I've been able to take some of those lessons and try to transfer those, not only other people athletically, but also in other venues, you know, not just athletically. If that's your expectation and you fix your mind on thinking that this is where I'm going to be, as we know, you know, the mind is more powerful than sometimes your physical being. You can, you can achieve anything. You know, it, we oftentimes get into these cliche sayings, but it is, the longer I live, it is absolutely true that you can achieve anything that you put your mind to. So 
And, you know, I've been fortunate so, enough so, to be in some of those spots. So when did you know that you wanted to be a football player? Wow. Um, very early. Um, I probably started playing actually uh, organized football when I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade, which is super early, which I would not suggest to any young people to start that early. Uh, but, uh, and always had aspirations to do it. And again, it was, it was almost second nature. I mean, I had, uh, I lived next door to my great aunt who had two sons. Both of them were D1 scholarship athletes, one in football, one in track and field. Uh, in fact, Sports Illustrated commonly does this reoccurring article talking about some of the hotbeds of athleticism. The east side of Columbus is always in that top five where, you know, heck, I knew these guys. I knew guys that played at Ohio State, at Oklahoma, at, you know, a thousand other places around. So we just thought that that was the natural order of things. You go to high school, you do well, people recognize who you are, you go off to college, and then you do well enough to play professional because that was what the expectation was. Uh, now, mm -hmm. having said that, there were a lot of athletes, obviously, that didn't make it. You talk about a super small percentage, I think it's 0.01 uh, percentage of of people who played varsity sports in high school that ended up making it professional, what made us stand out, I think, was also our work ethic. I mean, we were, heck, I, I could go down the list of guys that um, that's, some people would know that have played professional sports where, you know, when we're 13, 14 years old, we're getting up at 6 a.m. in the morning, going out running in heavy boots, thinking that that was going to be good for us, uh, drinking uh, all these potions of different drinks and trying to put on some kind of muscle, but Again, that was just the status quo where, you know, you try to get a kid up and outside and play in the day. It's almost impossible to do. That was just the way that we were raised and the things that uh, we did. I had an extreme fortune of uh, the same aunt that lived next door. Her oldest boy ended up being the sprint coach at Ohio State. So he would often take me to practice mm -hmm. at Ohio State. Now, this is the time of uh, a lot of people would know Joe Banks, rest in peace. Uh, let's see. Uh, Terry McBroom, there were a lot of uh, just all-American sprinters. Here I am, a 12, 13-year-old out at their practices, keeping up with these guys because I thought that I was supposed to. So, so you know, I developed, uh, you know, quite a bit of speed and honestly was a little bit heavier recruited in track and field uh, than I was. Even though I was all-American in football and track, I was probably more recruited in track and field than I was in football. But, of course, you know, I had those – those aspirations to go out and play football. So that's the, that's the ride. That's awesome. And so here we are, we're talking about resilience, you know, and mm -hmm. we're talking about connecting passion to purpose. So what, how would you define all that? Like what made you, I mean, I know that you were under a lot of discipline. You were under a lot of competition. You wanted to prove yourself, mm -hmm. but the going gets tough, oh, you know? So, <laughs> So and how I, do you bounce back? How do you deal? I mean, you were very young when you started. Sure, so sure. that was a lot of, lot of failures uh, along the way. Uh, you know, certainly, I, you know, I make the picture sound rosier than it is, but, you know, there were plenty <laughs> of times when I, when I would fall down. And, and you know, I, I, of course, you know, throughout my career, through training, through playing professional uh, sports, through training professional athletes, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys just about it. Every single guy to the man can think of a specific time where something happened, where they fell down and they had to get up, something got them focused. Now, for me, it was, it was pretty early 
it was the last day of school. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was the last day of school. And I'm in the, I, I want to say going into the fourth grade. Uh, so I would have been in the fifth grade next year. And we were having a, they were choosing teams to play football out of school. And of course, football was my sport. I really wanted to play. And we had an uneven number of people. And I was the last person out. I didn't get chosen. And I made a commitment at that time going into the fifth grade that that was never going to happen to me again, where someone didn't choose me to be on a team. I wasn't allowed. I couldn't play football on my last day of school. It was devastating for me the whole summer. So, you know, I decided to put in the work, you know, further on down the line, going through times where you didn't become a starter or you got to cut from teams and things like that. But, you know, I, I, I was just a stick, had a level of stick to to me. Uh, and also, one of the lessons my, I was raised, my father was a Baptist minister, so raised in the household of a Baptist minister, one of the things that he always impressed on me is that the measure of yourself is how you get up and not necessarily what your accolades are. When you get knocked down, how do you react? And uh, that is a lesson that I've carried throughout my life, and surely I feel it's my responsibility to somewhat teach that to other people. Hey, I literally sometimes uh, allow my children to fall or even got, put a little level of sabotage in there in times where it didn't count just so they can learn some of those life lessons and to be able to, you know, harden your armor. You got to go through a few things and have uh, some tests in order to have a testimony. I'm a firm believer in that. So, you know, I've, I've had a great ride. I, sh I wouldn't trade any of my bad times for anything because I think those are the things that sharpen your score. There's an old saying that... Uh, can only make a sword in a fire. You got to melt that iron down in order to get it nice and sharp. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I've almost come to embrace some of those struggles, even even today, heck, recently, and some of the things that have gone on with COVID, get knocked down, circumstances change. I think that uh, just developing those skill sets over my lifetime has enabled me to deal with adversity relatively well. So, you know, everything might be falling apart on the inside, but I'm, you know, kind of cool and collected on the outside you know you're raising a family you know, people are looking at you for an example if you're falling apart you know that's going to have an effect upon your environment and also you know having a, enough faith to know that you know oftentimes when we uh you know like the common saying sometimes if you if you pay for pray, patience uh creator's not going to just wave a magic wand and all of a sudden give you patience he's going to put you in some circumstances where you have to develop that and so when they say be careful what you pray for those are just some of the things that they're talking about is that you know, you, you're not necessarily going to be given stuff. What you're going to be given is circumstances so you can develop what you, what you ask for. And I can surely, whew, I can go down the list and make testimonies about, about things like that. And, but again, you know, that's, that's part of the struggle of life. Uh, you know, one of the arguments is the biggest part of the human condition is suffering. You know, we are oftentimes put in those circumstances, emotional things like that. One of the things that the lie that we're taught is that, you're always supposed to be okay. Everything is always going to be all right. If it's not, you know, you're supposed to, no, part of the human condition is sometimes backing up and absorbing the circumstance you're in and really dive into it and have an understanding for why you're there. And again, using some of those things as stepping stools to get to another place. Sometimes those things are cast upon us to get us to another place. It may feel rough at the time, but uh, oftentimes it's, it is for the better, so. Uh, and I could like I could bore you to death talking about a million things that I've experienced in that way, and it's but but I'm I'm a true blessed individual. It's 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 been uh, it's been a good a very good life.
fact, uh, on this. This is exactly uh, what we're looking for. Yeah. Here, there's a heim on my hand, which is uh, uh, in Judaism, a heim stands for uh, an awesome life. So mm -hmm. I, I have something like I tatted it on my right arm just to always have a reminder of when times are down or you need to pull on a little bit of extra resource, you know, kind of spend some time in meditation and looking at the things that you've been through uh, and, and realize some of the tools that you have in order to get you to a, a better place or a better place of understanding or be able to help somebody else get out of a circumstance. That has been my, there's, there's my mm -hmm. sermon for today. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you're raised deep in like Columbus, Ohio. Why mm -hmm. Michigan State? I mean, because Michigan ooh, State ooh. for our listenership, because this is an international podcast. So um, some people don't correction. know American football. Yes, yes. Um, that is the yes. University of Michigan. Big correct. Now, Michigan State is one of the University yes. of Michigan's biggest rivals now. Of course, Ohio State is, is a huge rival, too. That, that is a uh, yes. one of those things. So thank that, you for yeah. correction. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But uh, well, but st uh, it's still, it's still, you know, why exactly. did why didn't you stay in in house? Why didn't you like go yeah. to Ohio State? In fact, a uh, uh, story of irony. Uh, at the time I was being recruited, I was you know in the top ten recruits in the nation, and literally uh, was fortunate enough I could have gone anywhere to go to school, anywhere in the country. I had kind of had my choice. So understanding the gravity of the circumstance. Now my mother, at the time, she read. Uh, worked as a, an assistant professor and uh, at the agricultural library for all, for the Ohio State University. So everybody was assuming mm. I was going to go to Ohio State. To, I mean, we had season tickets. You know, I've met players that, that played at Ohio State, played with guys that were older than me that played at Ohio State. Everybody thought that I was going to go to Ohio State. But uh, understanding the gravity of the circumstance, my parents approached me and when I was asking for help, they told me that, look, here's a decision. We understand you're only 17, 18 years old. Here's a decision that you have to make that literally is going to have an effect upon the rest of your life. You need to own this decision. You need to make a good decision. Now, we'll, we can give you help in, as far as working through those things, but the, in their wisdom, they didn't want to be in a circumstance where I went to a place because they wanted me to or that it, you see guys all the time second-guessing their decisions because they – they did it out of uh, some dowry to something that was not part of what their makeup was. So as it turns out, they wanted me to go to Michigan. They told me that after I commended it. But you look at the combination of things, uh, close to home, three hours away, my parents could get there. Uh, to be able to play for a legend like Bo Schimbeckler, who was I played for his last four or five teams. If people don't know him, a good Google will, will show you who he is. Uh, Academically, Michigan was ranked third in the nation behind Harvard and Yale. To this day, it's still third in the nation behind Harvard and Yale. So the combination of those things, to be able to play for a national contender every year, to be close enough to home, and also to have the academic backing, which is, I, I tell my young athletes, look, coaches come and go. You may not ever be a starter. You may not play at all. The decisions that you need to make are based upon the long term and not just a short-term dream. So uh, it was a perfect fit for me. And mm -hmm. even looking back at it now, and some of the, the people that I've come in contact with at Michigan, some of the, the people who are in positions today of importance, uh, I could go down the list, but it was, it was an awesome experience. Uh, and heck, it really, uh, out of that experience, 
I, my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter actually graduated from Michigan also. And, and honestly, you know, my fear was that when, if they went to Michigan, you know, they had all these expectations, it was never going to meet them. They probably had a better experience at Michigan than I did, which is saying a lot. Because <laughs> I surely, uh, you know, not only had fun, but got my education, met a lot of good people. And honestly, the relationships that I've had at Michigan are still paying dividends. I, I, that story is still unwritten as far as how that thing unravels and where I end up uh, being, you know, even at 52 years old, uh, still, I think that uh, the best is still yet to come. Wonderful. <laughs> Speak of that, oh, am I skipping when I'm talking to you? Can you hear me skip or because sometimes it skips for you? Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, we got a, it's a little shaky on the connection, but, but I can comprehend. So you've had your series of setbacks and, you know, um, all that stuff that happens in your lifetime you to choose. Who are your inspirations? Wow, yeah. Do you have one that stands out? Man, that would be very difficult to narrow that to one. I could probably go through stages in my life and pick out a person who had the most influence at a particular time, uh, but overall, I think that a, quite a, a bit of my motivation uh, came from just the background that I came from. Uh, you look at the sometimes the expectations, which can be a two-edged sword, and uh, some people, you know, having these expectations of you. I was always a, uh, I would say, as a child, more of a pleaser, where I didn't want to let people down, and was groomed at a very early age of how you deal with people in public, just from obviously being a, a Baptist minister's son. Oftentimes when you were in church, when you were in the marketplace or different places, eyes were on you. So that I became very comfortable uh, somewhat with that. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, everywhere we go, different like that, people know you and things like that. You know how to talk. But I mean, that started from when I was super young and it almost became part of my being. Uh, and it surely it, is, it has helped me, you know, from professionally, uh, not only athletically, but, uh, but obviously in, uh, in personal training, just to be able to read people, to be able to deal with them. Uh, one of the best experiences I've had as uh, being in the industry is uh, when I, uh, my second year in the league, uh, I got released from uh, the New England Patriots. So I moved back home and I had a degree in kinesiology. So I went over to a um, to a uh, one of your bigger clubs. I won't say the name of them, but uh, went to one of the bigger clubs and said, "Hey, you know, I've got a degree in uh, in uh, kinesiology. You know, I'd like to be a trainer here." Gave him my background. I said, "Sure, we can we can hire you as a trainer." But the guy approached me and said, "You know, you can be a trainer if you want to, but what you should really do if you want to make some money is be on my sales team." And that was probably the from a career standpoint, one of the best decisions I made uh, because that's where I learned the business. Uh, long story short, I come in and from day one, I'm their number one salesperson in the country. So, you know, you went on all these trips, you're going to different places. Um, I ended up uh, going back and getting another year in the league. And when they hired me back after I was done playing football, I was uh, in control of their biggest club in the country at the time. So I go to this club, we're killing it from a sales standpoint. You know, members are giving you all kinds of accolades, things like that. So I get approached by the, uh, by the company and they tell me, hey, we love the job you're doing. You're 
obviously doing very well. What we want to do, we're going to bring in a, a group. All they're going to do is follow you around for 30 days. We're going to revamp everything we do from a sales uh, standpoint based upon your work. I'm like, well, hey, that's cool. You know, somebody is recognizing your work. They want to you know, give you some accolades for doing so. Well, how? I, so I asked the question, how much do I get paid for, for my ideas? And they tell me that, well, that's part of your employment. You're not going to get paid anything. I literally wrote my letter of resignation right then, handed it to them, and walked out of the door. Moved back to Columbus. I knew I was sitting on something important just from the standpoint of some of the information they were telling me, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And this is, I had to be 26, 25 years old at the time. So I, I literally moved back to Columbus, started my own club and have been doing it since. So, uh, you know, that's in, in short, that's kind of the story of how I got started actually running a, a, a fitness club in Columbus and, you know, moved to a couple of different spots, had my own business for about 22 years, I think. Finally got smart, took my name off the door and started mm-hmm. subcontracting for other people. And uh, uh, it's, it literally has been a ride since. And I've been doing that uh, portion of the business now for eight years. So I've been in, in the industry, ooh, man, 30 years now. It's <laughs> a long time. But, uh, but you know, having to stick yeah. to it in this you talk about some of the lessons that you learned along the way and, you know, never went to a bank to get a loan, always did it uh, uh, just for money that you were uh, be- being able to develop in your business at the time. You know, looking back at some of those hard lessons, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat proud of is the number of people that have come to work for me that I've been able to teach the business and they are out running their own clubs. And many of them, 10 or 12, were still running their own clubs, have been doing it for 10, 12 years. So, uh, and people thought I was crazy for giving up those secrets, but heck, if you're going to go out and you're going to do it the right way, as you know, this industry is littered with people that uh, don't quite know what they're doing. They read something in a magazine or your typical trainer is someone who they clam for a test over the weekend and all of a sudden they're an expert on Monday. Uh, you know, it makes us look great, but at the end of the day, uh, people are probably in this industry doing more damage than good. So it feels good to me to be able to train people in the right way, to give them the right information, to teach them to avoid some of the pitfalls that I had to endure and to still look back and give those guys a call or rely on my advice, see that they're still, still doing well using all the things that, uh, that came out of my experience. So. Uh, from a give back standpoint, it does make you feel pretty good. And I'm mm-hmm. you know, quite proud of, of all those guys and doing it what we would call the, the right way. So what is a common myth about a fitness instructor um, or any other work that you do that you've always wanted to debunk? Wow, that is a complicated question. Um <laughs> I've always envisioned uh, some of one of the things that, that I started doing when I opened my own club is I was giving away free fitness evaluation. Now, from a business standpoint, of course, you wanted to get people in the door. Uh, my strategy has always been, you know, and impress people with your knowledge, let them know that you are an expert and that you can get them to achieve their goals. So, uh, you know, one of my sales pitches was I am the buffer in between misinformation and what you actually need to do in order to get in shape. One of my, one of the main ones is that 
you should be exercising for weight loss. It dry, or that the results of your exercise program are based upon what the scale does. That is the biggest, probably the biggest fitness myth. You look at uh, all of these shows like The Biggest Loser or all these different things like that. We've almost been wrapped into a cycle of thinking that it's always about weight loss, where one of the things I teach is that it's about wellness, not weight I can care less what that scale says if you're getting healthier. Prime example, I am about 5'11 and 210 pounds. Based upon a height and weight scale, I am clinically obese. Granted, we could go out on the street, we can grab a thousand guys that are 5'11, 210 pounds. We're gonna be all different shapes. Okay, some would be a little bit higher. I'm right now, I'm uh, you know, out of competition. I'm probably sitting at about 8% body fat, uh, which uh, anything for a man uh, that's around 12 is considered in an elite category. You may find a guy with the same stats that is that might be 35, 40% body fat. But based on a height and weight scale, they would consider us the same amount of health. Actually, funny you ask, where that scale comes from is back in the early 1900s, insurance companies saw a bit of a boom. What they wanted to do was be able to, to determine how healthy a person was without having to send them to a, a doctor to incur a cost to the insurance company. So they developed this scale. Not a doctor, not a fitness person, a, an insurance agent developed the scale to decide how healthy you were. Uh, what's crazy is that uh, you looked at uh, how fitness has been interpreted by that throughout that time. In fact, the biggest morbidity rates are a person at their ideal weight and height that is not exercising at all. They are the most unhealthy individuals uh, in the United States. So, you know, and all, but we are so stuck on this scale mentality. Hey, I've seen circumstances have hundreds of them where a person may, their weight may stay the same, but they may lose four or five dress sizes. Of course, we know muscle weighs a lot more than fat, what we want to focus on, what we should be focusing on, is changing your body composition and making you healthier rather than just making you lose weight. And I jokingly tell people sometimes on an initial evaluation, like I can make you lose 10 pounds today, but does that mean that you're healthier? Not at all. I mean, most of that is going to be water weight or it, it sometimes it's unhealthy exactly to be able to lose some weight. Sometimes it's healthy. And I, I sometimes warn uh, people who have an exercise, hey, we may see your weight go up two or three pounds, but your waistline is going to come down. You're going to be a little bit leaner. You're going to feel a lot better. Your breathing is going to be uh, a little bit better. So, you know, some of those things, if I had one thing that I could ever change in the market, let's get out of this scale mentality and stop thinking of fitness uh, just from an aesthetic standpoint. It's about feeling better. It's about improving the quality of your life. You know, it's about uh, the, the scenario that we commonly see is that a person works so hard all of their life. They're putting away their retirement. They're overworked. They're stressed. They're doing all those things. By the time they get to a place where they can enjoy their retirement from all of their hard work, they're not healthy enough to go anywhere or to be able to enjoy it. You talk about a, a tragedy and here you've neglected your health all of those years and you stored up all these things to be able to enjoy them. Basically what you did is stored away for someone else because you'll never be able to enjoy it because you have neglected them on the other side. Uh, you know, the universe seeks balance. One of the things that I try to teach people is, you know, if you're working that hard, you've got to balance that out with some relaxation, some massage, some wellness, you know, be able to, to get out of that mentality of always work.
Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we're somewhat getting the message. I think uh, as a as a nation, you know, it's no secret that uh, in this country we're probably in some of the lowest quality of health, but we spend the most money on health care. Hmm. Go figure that one out. So, uh, but I think we're somewhat getting out of that. Mentality. I know. It's it's kind of one of the reasons that we just, it's about conversations, right? It's just trying to get, we're on the same boat, literally. Like we're all meant to be on this earth, to walk on the earth at this time. So how do we lift each other up instead of tear each other apart or down? So that's one of those things, you know, it's, it's all kind of like the world. And we're all in this together. Um, the, our platform is always the power of the and that, you know, this breath, we have a finite amount of breaths. Right. And so what are you going to do with that breath right. um, in this lifetime? And, you know, when, when bad things happen to you, how do you bounce back? And that's right. pretty much what we're trying to share. But weird, what's your most humbling job that you've ever had to do? And what was humbling about it? I could, I immediately, 10 or 12 things come to mind in some uh, humbling circumstances. I would say the most is something that uh, oftentimes I, I get in a habit of trying to fix my head from an empathetic standpoint. Uh, when I first started training, now I was literally a week or two out of football. The thing I quickly learned was that the rest of society was not as interested in working hard as I was. I'd always been around athletes, people who were always, you know, 100 miles an hour trying to do everything full go. I quickly learned not everybody's able to do that. Uh, circumstance that I, that I came across uh, very early in my career where a young lady came in and I'm, you know, I'm a kinesiologist. I knew how to, you know, move the scale and make a weight. She had been with six or seven other trainers previous. You know, this is, I'm like her eighth or ninth trainer. So I get her in in the first week, we do a couple of very basic things. Uh, not much, just enough to stimulate her metabolism and get the scale to change so I could get her full attention and then back up and do do the uh, hard work. So uh, literally uh, seven days in, I have a weigh-in and I get her on the scale. She lost three pounds. Literally started weeping to a point that I had to console her. And quickly that light bulb goes off. Look, understand that how difficult it is for people over their lifetime, how they may have struggled with their weight or uh, other outside forces, maybe being teased as a child, maybe been, you know, so quickly my, I made that shift from, look, this is just not about physical. This is about encompassing wellness. This is about the metaphysical. This is about what people's background are, where they arrive, where they come from. And that completely, fortunately caught it early, that completely changed the way that I started looking at fitness. Uh, so, you know, still using that example uh, in every circumstance that I've gone into and never taken for granted, you know, some of those subtle or small changes. Uh, by the same token, when you sit down with the person initially, you want to make sure that their expectations are realistic. Uh, again, you look at the way fitness is sold, uh, everything that we, if the exercise industry was held under the same standards of other industries, they would be locking people up and taking them to jail. How is it that I can have a commercial that talks about a product that doesn't do anything that I say that it does? You know, uh, one of the worst is those uh, 
those abdominal uh, um, electro things that go in your stomach. And they're telling you that if you get these contractions, it's going to take inches off. That is absolutely false. <laughs> it just does not work that way. And it's interesting how the scrutiny for Snake oil. Exactly, snake oil. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And it is just, it amazes me because we've been conditioned to think that if it comes yep. over the or if they say it, oh, maybe a, doc, a doctor must have uh, approved that. Not at all. And uh, again, you know, that's why one of my strategies has always been, you know, when I sit down on an initial eval, to be very realistic with the person about what their expectation should be. Uh, you know, fortunately, you know, I've had the background uh, where I can get results pretty quickly. My strategy has always been because... I love getting a skeptic and a person that, that is, uh, doesn't think that they're going to get results because, heck, I'll poke and prod from a kinetic standpoint just to get that scale to move so I can get your attention because I realize you've been watching TV all of your life. You've seen these commercials. You're basing your fitness program on weight loss. Now that we've lost a few pounds, now I can get the foundation settled so we can go about doing it from a wellness standpoint. But, you know, that's, that's part of uh, the industry. That's part of wellness. And... I always tell my clients, look, from the time I take you on as a client, my main responsibility is to get rid of you. I should be able to teach you everything that you need to know about fitness in order for you to set up your own exercise point. Eventually, you're going to get to a point where you may not need a trainer. It's, it's, sometimes it's expensive. You may not be able to afford it. I should be able to give you the information. That's my responsibility. Give you the information to set up your own exercise program. It's more teach a man to fish rather than give a man a fish. Now, you know, I've been fortunate enough that a lot of people want to hang around and still they don't want to think about it. Look, I just show up and you uh, do what you need to do, David, but they still have an understanding of why I'm doing the thing. And that lowers your perceived level of exertion when you have an understanding for why we're doing a certain amount of work. And having that understanding, being able to visualize uh, how it's working definitely carries over into your success. Uh, in your exercise program. So you're, you know, you're less like, I, I commonly tell people, look, we want to build a metabolism and a lifestyle so that you can enjoy yourself when it's appropriate to. One of the things I, I hate looking at is these super restrictive diets or these super restrictive, like, no, that's, we shouldn't be beating ourselves up in order to look a certain way. Let's incorporate this into your lifestyle, not vice versa. That is the route that I would say 90% of the industry takes where you come to, a, if you're a client, you come to a person, they want to change everything you're doing. No, no, I want to take a look at your lifestyle. Let's see where we can make some adjustments in order to get the same result. If we're creatures of habit, uh, I want to operate off of that, off of your habitual chemical reinforcement in order to get results. That's the way we build into your lifestyle. So it's no different from getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. It's not a hassle because that's built into your lifestyle. And like at the end of the day, people don't like being uncomfortable. I shouldn't have to beat you up in order to get there, which is a major difference between uh, training out of a kinesiology hat and training out of a, out of a physiology hat. Mostly physiology is, is um, based out of workload, where if I want to lose five pounds, I know I've got to burn X amount of calories. Here's the amount of work I need to do in order to, to burn that many, many calories to burn to burn that five pounds. Whereas a kinesiologist, I'm taking a look at your basal metabolism, the amount of calories it takes to keep you alive. I'm taking a look at your lifestyle, making some simple adjustments based upon your pattern 
in order to, to get you there. I'm taking a look at your muscle density in order to speed your metabolism up in order to, to close that gap with some of your extra calories. I'm taking a look at your hydration, how your heart's beating, uh, other simple things like parking further in the lot, taking the stairs, all those little things during the course of the day add up. So I want to take a bunch of little changes to add up to that same amount that a physiologist would want to in one workout. And I, I tell people, look, I'm only with you an hour a day. You've got to handle those other 23 hours. But here are the things that I've seen work. Here are the pitfalls. Now, I tell people, be completely honest. Even, let's say, like with a food diary, one of the first strategies I'll have is to get a pattern of how a person is eating. I tell them, be completely honest with that pattern. It's my job to speed your metabolism up to match that pattern rather than say, okay, you can't eat this, you can't do this, you can't. People don't do so well with that. And I, I jokingly tell them at the end of the day, if you kept your diet absolutely the same, didn't want to make any changes, you just physically cannot, we're going to get results anyway. So I'm going to speed your metabolism up so we can match that caloric burn. And for most people, that's just a matter of going, doing the math and making it happen. Fortunately, uh, in most cases, that doesn't involve something super intense. That's more, I always tell people, the duration of your exercise is more important than the intensity. A nice long walk, You'll probably burn more body fat than going out and trying to run a, a you know, you got to meet people where they are, put them in their comfort zone. Once they get comfy, okay, we might have to push the envelope a little bit. But now you know your body, you know where your tolerances are, you're used to some of the soreness or things like that. That's a lot easier stair to climb than to just shock them at the beginning and, and make it so uncomfortable that they want to quit. And quite frankly, that's usually what happens. Like, you don't want to come back. Yeah. Right. I mean, one of my uh, one of my stats that I that I commonly toss at your average person that joins a fitness gym, or they join, they don't they go three times in about a three week period of time. That's your average, and we see people repeating that cycle over and over. So, you know, which was one of my strategies when I was working for some of the bigger clubs. How do we get people in there understanding that your frequency and your duration are the most important in your exercise? How do we get people to a place that they actually want to be here? How do we build that into their lifestyle? That's somewhat where I started with the base of, of developing some of my strategies. Again, going back to the mental, I, I was fortunate enough to get that lesson very quickly. It is more up here than it is. I was going to say, if there was somebody out there listening to mm -hmm. our podcast and they wanted to do the exact same thing you're doing, um, like they want to have their own business. By the way, remind me to ask you later on how people can get a, get a hold of you, okay? Oh, yeah. sure. But what's the one thing, what's the one thing that you would advise somebody who wants to get into the same field as you to start um, their own business, to be a kinesiologist? Yes, um, do your homework. Uh, one of the things that I love about the industry is that there is no pool of information out there that we all don't have access to. Everybody's pulling from the same information. It's more of how you implement that, that information in order to be successful. Uh, for a person that wants to start a gym or start a business, first choice would be you need to build a clientele, whether that's your family members, whether that's uh, friends, things like that you need to get adjusted to how you're going to be able to present yourself mm -hmm. from a business standpoint uh an analogy i commonly use is like if i go to a restaurant and the food is great service is bad the place is dirty that food is not going to taste as good 
you could have all the information in the world, but oftentimes how you present that makes a difference in that person's success. And realizing it's not just about the physical, it's more about the meta metaphysical and, and the mental that gets people there. One of the things that I, that I teach people uh, that are trying to get into the industry is that um, everybody knows that, that exercise is good for you. We don't have to sell them on that concept. Where we need to sell people is that you know what you're talking about and you know how to get them there. And that's a, that's a fine balance in the way that you go about an initial evaluation. Because at the end of the day, you're, I hate to use the term, but you're a salesperson. Uh, and how do you convince a person that they should spend hard-earned dollars with you in order to, to coach you to get there is, number one, you're, you're the, be an expert. Uh, one of the things I love is that information changes all the time. Just with technology, we're in one of those acceleration points where what we were doing six months ago will change in the next six months. So, and there's a huge pool of information now more than ever before. Um, I used to be about uh, about 10 or 11 years ahead of the rest of the industry. You know, I was doing HIT training before it was called HIT. We were doing peripheral circuits and things like things that are just popular today. But I think that uh, just with the acceleration of info, hey, everybody's smartphone, you've got literally uh, the Smithsonian Library right there in your hand. You've got all the information in the world immediately available to you. That's one of the things I love where uh, you can cross-reference these things. Uh, I do warn people, though, be careful about uh, where you get your information from. One of the first places that you check is who sponsored that information, whether there was a corporation or a company. Because again, in this industry, people are trying to sell things. There are a few uh, good sources out there, and you can kind of read between the lines and be able to get to a place where you have a good base understanding of number one, how the body works, human patterns, and also how to implement that in order to get people there. And you know, most trainers are in that physiology mode where they just want to beat people up and feel like they've got to crush people to get there. That's just no fun at all. That's a, not a good way to keep clients. Uh, now, granted, there's a rare client that enjoys that and that's the service that they want. And I can provide that when I have to, but for the most part, you know, everybody doesn't want to be a professional athlete or, hey, even they just want to look good maybe in the clothes that they wear. They just want to be healthy. I just want to be able to be mobile enough to play with my grandkids when they come over. You know, some of those simple things. And I tell people when you're in an eval, instead of talking about the importance of exercise, identify that reason why they wanted to start an exercise program. It's very important because in most cases, it's something small, something other than uh, I was teased as a child. I've got a class reunion that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And once you find mm -hmm. that, what I call their, the hot button of why they want to start an exercise program, it, then the doors are open. You begin to gain an understanding of the service that you actually need to provide to that individual. And great thing about fitness, heck, I can get you there a thousand different ways. I'm trying to cater that towards where your tolerances are, where your variances are, rather than, no, you got to do it this way and you got to, you know, don't be that trainer. And you know, I tell trainers, you should have enough knowledge that now you surely may have a more of a tendency or a better acumen with a certain group, but you should be able to train anybody, whether that's a child, whether it's an only person, that should be your knowledge base. And the thing is, we never lose uh, the capacity for gaining more knowledge. And Still to this day, I try to read, I do my articles, I do my homework in different ways because believe me, once you get all that in your head, 
uh, it will manifest itself in the right way if your intentions are good and you have an understanding for what people want. But I make it sound a little bit easier, that, but that's 30 years of experience in doing so. But as I tell people that I consult with, look, my experience is your experience. Uh, you know, heck, I know you're maybe two or three years in the industry, but you've got 30 years of experience at your back. You can always pick up the phone or don't be afraid to tell people you don't know. But uh, more of the, a measure of knowledge for me is that I know where to go find the information rather than always have it available and at the ready. So, uh, yeah, don't be afraid to uh, have to do some digging and searching and give back to people on what they need. And heck, it's, it's a service industry. More than anything else, you got to provide a good service in order to be successful. So I heard you say two things. One is finding the why for your clients. So I wanted to ask you what your why is to do to keep doing what you're doing. And secondly, you said something about picking up something that is your, you know, or, or just speaks to you. So I want to find out what's the thing that you did recently that you read that you saw, or listened to or heard that that made a difference and it not, might not be work related so let's do your why first what's your why my, my why and i it's funny i commonly get accused of having great discipline and every time someone says that i literally i cringe because you know i i don't imagine that it's it's the discipline of it for me it's always been more of the uh accountability I'm, if I'm a, I'm a fitness expert, I should look the part. I should be living the lifestyle that's the same. I mean, and I, like I tell trainers, look, imagine if, if, you're, uh, if you come into your doctor's office and he's telling you to live a healthier lifestyle, but he's smoking a cigarette and he's eating junk food, things like that. Does he really believe what he's saying? So, you know, at some level, now that doesn't mean every trainer's got to walk around and, you know, look like they're stepping off the cover of a magazine, but they surely should be healthy. Uh, or even, and even defining what health means uh, to people. You know, again, we're in that mentality of, of, of weight loss. We want to get out of that mentality and get more to a, to a wellness base. So uh, I would say the why is more out of accountability. If I'm out here preaching sermons about fitness, I should at minimum be living that lifestyle. So, and that's not to say, you know, that you eat right all the time or things like that, but surely built into my lifestyle is the uh, being allowed to do some of those things. You know, if I'm having uh, a birthday party on the weekend. I'm going to make sure my diet's a little bit cleaner during the week. I'm a little more hydrated or even strategies that you use before you go out. Uh, you know, if I'm going to get a big amount, if I know that I'm going to have a couple of drinks, throw some fiber into your system so your body absorbs some of that sugar so it doesn't have quite the same effect. So, you know, little tricks like that that you do in, in order to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So, uh, and you be an example. Uh, you know, I've, I've been around long enough that they call you an expert when you hang around too long. So, <laughs> so yeah, trying to, trying to walk that walk is, uh, yes. Now, gotcha. I would say, you talk about information and, uh, and always staying uh, up on different things. One of the places that uh, I've really started diving into is from a nutrition standpoint, uh, getting out of that bodybuilder's mentality of always thinking that you got to dump all this protein into your body. Uh, I've really uh, been doing a lot of research, uh, uh, ironically, with some old teammates. Uh, we're doing a challenge here in the next couple of weeks where we're going to go meatless for four weeks. 
uh, and I surely see the benefit of it. I understand the science, but again, I gotta, I gotta fix it here in order to make it work. But uh, you take a look at uh, uh, just what has been taught in bodybuilding over the last five, six decades about proteins, and I have literally gone 180 degrees in, the, in my thinking from a nutrition standpoint of what your body needs and how it reacts to certain things, your vascular response to certain foods, how fat is stored and things like that. So again, you know, we're at a golden time from a technology, you know, this industry just continues to get better because we, we continue to get better information. So uh, it's exciting and it always keeps your job fresh. You know, I'm, I'm commonly asked, don't you get bored training? No, because every single individual is, is completely different. I mean, I could take this, I could take the same exercise program, give it to 10 different people. We're surely going to get 10 different results. Now you multiply that with, heck, if a person shows up, uh, maybe they didn't get enough rest that day. Maybe they're not quite uh, fueled the way that they should be. Maybe they had a rough day. I've got to be able to read that and implement my workouts based upon how they arrive. So I may have an awesome game plan, but I know that if that person is not in a place physically that they can handle that that day, I've got to have enough knowledge and, and, and know-how in order to change that work based upon how they arrive. So that's one of the challenging parts and it never gets boring because you never have the same workout. So, and having a, a good toolbox, as I call it, I tell trainers to build a good toolbox where I even tell my clients, look, if there's an exercise you don't like, I don't care if you don't like the color of a machine or things like that. I, there are a thousand other things that I can do that can replace that particular exercise. Oftentimes, here's a pattern that I'm in where I work more out of exercise theory where I know the amount of work that we need to do. I know these are the muscle groups we need to hit. Maybe we're doing that for the first six or seven workouts, but we're going to make every one of those workouts different. We're never going to repeat an exercise in those first few uh, exercise sessions. So. Uh, being able to implement some of your some of your toolbox, being able to change your workout, keeping it fresh. Heck, if a client shows up and they know exactly what they're what they're supposed to do on that day, why do they need you there? Outside of motivation, heck, if they know what their workout's supposed to be in housing, mm -hmm. why am I here? <laughs> so you know, and there's a bit of energy. They want to get yelled at. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, and sometimes you need to be a pin cushion where, hey, again, it's wellness. Sometimes a person may have a bad day at work. Yeah, they want to dump all that on you. You know, the habit that we fall in is that making sure we're not in that gray area where I'm the pin cushion. I can't do that same thing with my clients, but they would quickly be gone. But yeah, sometimes you just got to listen to people, let them pour all that out, right. and get, you know, lower their blood pressure. They have, they'll not only exercise it physically, but being able to get all that out of them. It's, uh, you know, it's a big source of wellness. And you build that kind of rapport. Uh, one of the things I'm proud of is that I would say more than 50% of my clients I've had more than 12 years, you know, trying to put my finger on exactly why, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that's an accomplishment where you look at, again, that stat that, you know, most people will exercise three times in three weeks and they're done. So, you know, to be able to maintain people's health over that period of time is surely have built some awesome friendships and seeing people have kids and grandkids and get married and, all those things it is it is quite rewarding so question do you have or have you had doubters haters naysayers what would you say to them like who said you'd never amount but i mean we all have, 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so, I mean, we use that as a bench, like a jumping board to say, you know, um, we're, we're, they, we're these kinds of people because of them, you know, right. but right. I mean, so what would you say to them if, if you well, ever had a chance who said you would never make it where you are? Well, I've, I've had a few of those experiences where uh, I had a guidance counselor who told me in high school that, no, you know, some of those bigger schools, they're too big for you. You, you know, you may not get lost academically and things like that. And the, the, uh, what I've been taught is that you bless a person that is cursing you is like pouring hot coals on their head. So just to be able to put yourself in their presence and maybe having an opportunity to remind them what they said, I don't need to chastise you. I don't need to redirect or anything else just to let you know that I remember what you said uh, in, in some of those cases. And uh, one of the things that I've, I've tried yeah. to you know, yeah. teach the younger people, particularly my children, is that you can measure your success based upon people who are hating on you. I mean, hey, this, this is, uh, you know, still we're dealing with, uh, we're dealing with human beings and jealousies and a lot of other feelings. Like if you weren't making any impact, you wouldn't have any haters. Plus, from a spiritual standpoint, if you're not making an impact on the world, even this will leave you alone because you're already doing the job. You know, if you're making an impact, those things that yeah. try to come against you to disrupt what you're doing rather than uh, if you're coming under attack is because you're a threat. So, uh, you know, we want to be those positive threats and mm -hmm. be able to nice. uh, do some good. So, uh, yeah, if you're being attacked, this pretty much com is confirmation that you're doing some good. So uh, I, I kind of, you know, when it talks about love your enemies, I think that's what it means. So yeah, I appreciate you. I see what you're doing. I see the things you wrote about me or what you said behind my back. <laughs> yes, and just put yourself in their presence on, you know, even simple things like, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've had circumstances where, you know, a person doesn't want to talk to you or somebody that doesn't know you from Adam outside of what they've heard of you. I make it a point to, even if they don't speak, hello, hello how are you doing? Having a good day? Just make them see their eyes hit the floor or roll their eyes or whatever, but yeah, I put that on them. I can't, uh, and I've gotten shielded from that type of negativity. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's a little bit of a get back in, in some ways. It makes me giggle, but. So what are you not very good at? Ooh, I'm a super compartmentalized person. Uh, and that has surely been to my benefit at times. But in other times, uh, I would say sometimes I get over-focused to where my interpersonal relationships will suffer a bit because I'm, when I'm on the tracks and you're doing something that's difficult and you get super focused. And I, I surely blame that from, I don't know whether, whether I'm wired that way or I learned that, but blame that totally on sports where, you know, uh, one of the things I, I talk about is creating sanctuary for yourself where when you're in that mode and you're doing things where nothing else in the world is important at that time outside of where your focus is at that particular time. I'm pretty good at shifting those gears uh, when I have to, but oftentimes, you know, heck, even going through, you know, the COVID thing and changing business plans and doing stuff like that, when you get that hype, I get hyper-focused and your other, your other things, you know, your wife, your children, things like that suffer a little bit now. Obviously, they've been around long enough to know me, uh, and they had need to reel me in when I when I get in those places. But you know, if I had uh, a biggest chink in my armor, it's probably that getting over focused and being somewhat compartmentalized. But 
again, that's that's that two-edged sword. It's yielded itself in, in both directions, hopefully more towards So you sing and dance. Uh, what's the am I? I am capable. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I would love, I was waiting for you to say sing and dance or something, but hey, you know. So, okay, if you could have, if you could have one, if you could one superpower, what would it be? Oh, man. Wow. I'm, uh, I, I this comes because it's super, super jumpy. I would say, I would love to fly. In fact, I commonly find myself flying in my dreams when I realize in my consciousness that I'm actually dreaming. Hey, I'm dreaming. Let me take off and take flight. But uh, I would love that, yeah. Or, you know, a little x-ray vision, <laughs> maybe reading minds would be nice, but flight would be uh, too too much fun. If I had to choose one, <laughs> it would be too much fun to pass up. <laughs> and I'm a huge- Do you have a favorite word? Ooh, wow. I, I like a lot of words. <clears throat> wow, favorite? Not sure if I have a favorite, but you know, I'm uh, wife being a uh, English uh, major, uh, commonly throws some words at me that I think are cool <laughs> and use them uh, quite frequently. But uh, but no, I don't. I wouldn't say I have a absolute favorite, but I'm surely a uh, a fan of language and the manipulation of, uh, particularly in circumstances like you were talking about, where you have some haters and to be able to string a sentence together with them and they don't realize that uh, what you said until you're gone, <laughs> sometimes uh, doing it that oh. way. <laughs> but, but, okay. Uh, oh, okay, so where and how mm -hmm. can our listenership contact you? Where did that hold you? Um, probably the best way to contact me is uh, through social media or uh, email my David Russell Key at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also David Russell Key on Facebook. And I am David Russell Key, IFBB Pro, I believe, on uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, social media, not only from a business standpoint, but also gives you a, I've got a pretty good following and also follow a lot of good people that are always uh, giving me new ideas, revisiting things that you may have forgotten about, being able to encourage people through, particularly during these times, uh, and also, you know, moving to doing the, uh, 100% uh, of my business online, uh, it has uh, surely been one hand that's worse than the other. So I'm ha having a having a good time with it. It was it was a difficult transition, a quick one, uh, and it was one of those things where you go from receivables to to shutdown towards the end of the month, and really had to redo uh, revamp your business and relaunch it in about 12, 15 days. That was uh, not an easy hustle, but it surely has paid dividends, and I'm I'm really enjoying it. As long as we're locked down, I'm going to be doing business online. Do you have a slogan? One, one that I've uh, used uh, frequently playing off my last name. Of course, the business name is Key Body and Fitness. And one of the slogans that I've always thrown around is unlock your fitness potential. That would be my... Oh, yeah, that's cool. Now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get it until now. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, hello. Yeah, of course. Duh. So anyway, um, no worries about all the ways people can contact you because we will be scrolling and putting your logo and stuff on there so that 
our, our listeners can get a hold of you and our view also. Um, so our bounce signatures question is, what does resiliency mean to you? And how would you use that to connect passion to purpose? I would say what resiliency means to me is a level of stick to a the fortitude to continue regardless of where the scoreboard is uh, metaphorically, meaning, you know, wherever your position is in life, you know, embrace some of those bad times that are sharpening your sores like we've been talking about. And uh, what was the second part of that question? What was the- And uh, what, how would you use resiliency? How would you use resiliency to connect passion to purpose? Oh, yes. Uh, well, certainly uh, uh, I've been fortunate enough to follow that old uh, adage that if you do something you like, you'll never work a day in your life. So, uh, you know, and being having some intuitiveness, being able to work through uh, some of those times where you literally should have and have fallen on your face. Uh, you know, if you've got passion about it and you're going at it for the right reasons, I always tell trainers, uh, you know, don't worry about the money. If you're passionate about what you're doing and you're out to help people, you'll be able to pay your bills. It'll There's no doubt you. about that. So, you know, somewhat having faith in that, I, I feel extremely fortunate in that. I feel that I'm doing the job that I was created to do. And there's a certain amount of solace in that, particularly in some of those bad times where you have to remind yourself of that. And, and again, sharpening those swords with, with that fire that you're in sometimes in order to get those ebbs and flows of life. Things aren't supposed to be good all the time, but surely, uh, hard times don't last, and uh, quite frankly, in some of those hard times, it's been somewhat enjoyable when you look back at, at them and you look at some of the things that you've endured and that you've been through in order to get through some of those storms and get to a different place. So the next storm that comes along, a little bit easier to get through it because you've been there and done that. You know, from a from a professional standpoint, you know that has surely been the ride, and I don't care how successful person has ever told, hey, you listen to, you read Michael Jordan's book and some of the people that we think of are having great success, uh, you look at some of the times that they fell down and fell and just staying in the fight. Uh, Muhammad Ali has a saying, it's impossible to beat a man that won't quit. So if you are always staying in the fight, you can't lose. Is this, this fight doesn't have a endpoint to it, you know, outside of the if you stand, If you stand in the fight, you eventually you're going to find a way to win. It's just a matter of enduring those rough times in order to practice. Well, Dave, you are such a joy. I love you dearly, and I'm so glad for our friendship. I'm hoping that the, this thing took, it was jumping a bit, but I don't know if it's my headset. I don't know if Zoom is overpowered. So worst comes to worst, we can do this again because I'm Absolutely. learning so much about you. But I know that you could... <laughs> <laughs> you could be doing million things today. Instead, you took the time to spend with me and with my listenership, with our listenership, I should say. So I just want to say thank you. You're such a wonderful person. Thank you. I'm honored it. and privileged to call you my friend. Right, you, dear you. one. God bless awesome. you. Appreciate you. Yeah. You too, dear. We'll yeah. see you soon.